0: Let's open to Colossians, as we trust the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to also be our teacher this morning, and the one who applies it to our minds and our hearts. We're continuing in chapter 2 today, and we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> but again, to get the context, let's uh, pick it up in 6. in Him. So, in recent weeks, we've been learning about the completeness of our new identity in Christ, and so we continue there uh, this morning. The Apostle here is showing the Colossian believers how foolish it is to turn back to the law or to a legalistic, legalistic system of righteousness or to the ways and the philosophies of. The world when they already have all they need in Christ. That in Him, He says, we have been filled. So He develops the doctrine of Christ and what it means to be connected to Him by faith, and He shows us the practical ramifications of genuine conversion. Robert Gramacchi explains the transition here between uh, verses uh, 10 and 11 when he says, The emphasis in the first part of this section was upon who Christ is, but in the second half, it is upon what he has done. The believer, thus, can identify himself with his redemptive work as well as with his redeeming person. That brings us then to our big idea this morning. Which is this, at conversion, the spirit permanently unites the believer to Christ. This new identity includes sharing in the redemptive work of the triumphant savior and coming king. Now, we've seen already in this context that we are called to walk in the same way that we received Christ Jesus. How did we receive Christ Jesus? We received him as Lord. And so we are learning to walk in submission to his lordship and to be rooted and built up in Christ. And the more we are built up in Christ and see our sufficiency in Christ, the less likely we will be tempted to run to the philosophy of the world or human traditions or the elemental spirits of the world to get what we think we need for life and guidance. Instead, we will understand that that stuff is not according to Christ. And since we are complete in Christ, that is by far the infinitely better way to go. And so then in verse 9, he talks about the person of Christ, that Christ is both God and man, that the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily, and we are complete in him, verse 10, you've been filled in him. And then verse 11 starts to talk to us about the results of the redemptive work of Christ, which are true for every Sinner who has been born again by the Spirit of God, for everyone who has experienced conversion. The indwelling Spirit has filled to full every believer, and therefore it is by our union with Christ that we stand complete before God in Christ. Another way to say it is this that every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ. There is no spiritual blessing outside of Christ. Ephesians 1 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that's where we are at positionally before God as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 11, Paul moves on, and you can see this in the first three words In him also. So in addition to what I've already told you about your completeness before God in your position, there are also redemptive works of Jesus Christ that are true of you if you're connected to Jesus. And these should be making a difference in your life. These should be making a difference in the way that you live. So not only are you complete in Christ as a person... Because he is your complete identity, but your union with him through saving faith now brings you to share in his redemptive works. And here the apostle draws our attention to five works of Christ for the true believer. Number one, your old nature was cut away as the controlling force of your life. And Christ created in you a new man. If you know Jesus Christ through saving faith, this is already true of you. Your old nature was cut away as the controlling force of your life. God has now created something new in you. Now look at verse 11 because it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So what Paul does here now is he uses circumcision as a physical illustration of what God does spiritually to our hearts at the moment of conversion. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh. How? By the circumcision of Christ. See, like the churches in the region of Galatia, where we learn about through the, through the book of Galatians, the Jewish false teachers in Colossae were probably adding circumcision to the gospel. They were saying that Gentiles can be saved and become a part of God's covenant people, but if they want to be really saved, they have to also be circumcised. But this is a misunderstanding of what Christ accomplished for us and how he makes us into a new people in Christ. Uh, Paul deals with this in Galatians. In chapter 5, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, don't let other Christians... Put a yoke of slavery, of legalism, back around your neck and keep you trapped into Jesus plus this. Oh, Jesus will get you into heaven, but if you want to be a really spiritual Christian, then it's Jesus plus this regulation and this regulation and this regulation, which diminishes the completeness of the work of Jesus. And as I've confessed many times to you, i spent... Uh, years of my Christian life in that kind of legalistic bondage and bondage it was and it kept me away from seeing the fullness of who I am in Christ and experiencing his freedom so Paul then goes on in Galatians 5 and verse 2 look I Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you In other words, if you believe that you it's Jesus plus circumcision, then you've lost the advantage that Jesus gives you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, because you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So this is a mixture of law and grace that Paul is dealing with there in Galatians, but it's also a problem here in the churches of Colossae. Now, we need to understand circumcision a little bit better to understand the, um, the incredible significance of verse 11 for us as believers. Uh, in the Bible, circumcision is, is first mentioned in Genesis 17. I was there this week in my um, reading through the Bible plan, and there we read these words. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's a significant statement. You shall be another kind of father. Log that for a second. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant, God says to Abram, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now I realize that it's a rather uncomfortable conversation on a Sunday morning to talk about circumcision. Um, Let's just admit that up front that there are some honestly awkward parts of the bible but in sympathy with abraham we say ouch <laughs> it's one day it's one thing for our infant sons it's another thing for a 99 year old man but anyway that aside let's understand the whole point that the apostle paul is making here this is huge The physical circumcision that God gave to Abraham was a sign that God had a new purpose for him, that he was going to be the father of a different kind of people the father of a new kind of people, a new generation. And so this medical procedure was then codified by the law of Moses for every Hebrew male, and it became the outward sign that he then belonged to God's covenant people. But now in the New Testament, much has changed because the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law For us. I mean, it was so significant in the Old Testament that an uncircumcised Jew, as we read in Genesis 17, was cut off from God's people. Uh, That's why Gentiles, if you read other places in the Bible, they're referred to as the uncircumcision. But now look at the point that Paul is making here. In Christ... God has circumcised the heart of every believer. Look at what he's saying here. You were circumcised, but I'm not talking about a physical circumcision made with hands. I'm talking about a spiritual circumcision that Christ accomplished. That Christ has has given you new life. He's made a new person out of you. The old has been cut off and a new creation has been made. That's the point here. Uh, Richard Chin writes this, instead of stripping off a small piece of flesh in physical circumcision in Christ, we have had our body of flesh, our sins removed through the death of Jesus. Jesus. That is massive to understand. Another Bible teacher writes this, that spiritual circumcision does not eradicate the sin nature, but it does strip away the power of the sin nature so that a believer does not need to obey its dictates anymore. In other words, as, a, as believers in Jesus Christ who have the Holy Spirit of God within us and stand complete in Christ, we no longer have to sin we do sin, don't get me wrong. But we no longer have to sin. Before we were saved, sinning was the most natural thing that we did. Sinning was the natural disposition of our heart. We didn't even have to think about it. Resisting God was all we knew to do. We sinned when we wanted to sin, and, and we sinned even when we didn't want to sin. We were powerless to change. That's really important to understand. Before we knew Christ, we were unable to obey God from the heart. Now, if you were raised religious like I was raised, there were probably religious laws that you were able to keep fairly well just out of a sense of duty and perhaps fear, but not from the heart, not from a genuine heart that wanted to please God. But what Paul is saying here is that now in Christ, the sin nature is no longer the controlling force in our life. We are no longer under sin's dominion. Christ has created in us a new man. Turn back just a few uh, books in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. This is just huge. And it leads us then into the second work of Christ that Paul will deal with in Colossians 2. Look at uh, Romans 6. We were, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, verse, well, let's just start in one, uh, six, one What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, why would we as believers still live as though we were under sin's dominion? Do you not know, verse 3? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Four, this is the reason. If or since, since we have been united with him in a death like this we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see Paul's point? Paul is driving home the same point here As he is in Colossians 2. We have got to understand who we are in Christ. We have died to sin in Christ. We have been made alive unto righteousness in Christ. And therefore, sin is no longer to be our master. Will we still struggle with sin? Well, yes, because we're still dealing with the issue of indwelling sin because the sin nature is not completely eradicated. It won't be until we are glorified. But until then, God is working in our hearts to sanctify us. But the whole point that Paul is making here in verse 11 is, is understand who you are God in Christ has cut off the old man as the dominating force in your life. And you now have the spiritual power to walk faithfully with Christ. That's amazing. And it ought to be incredibly encouraging. Well, let's go back to Colossians 2 where we see a second work of Christ in the believer. Number two, you were united with Christ, immersed into his body, the church. So now in verse 12, Paul takes another physical rite and uses it to show the spiritual work that Christ accomplishes in salvation. Here he brings up the issue of baptism. He's He's... Speaking clearly of spiritual baptism here. Because he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So water baptism is a a physical rite. It's uh, something that Jesus even... Commanded for us. And why did he command it to us? Well, because it is an outward sign of something that is infinitely more important, which is spiritual baptism. It's an outward sign of something that is spiritually more important. Important. So when we get saved, according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. He he immerses us in the fullness of the redemptive work of Jesus on our behalf. So at conversion, this is what's true, believer. At conversion, we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we were raised with Christ. And the obedience of water baptism is an outward picture of that inner reality. It says outwardly, this is what I believe, according to Scripture, has happened to me because of faith in Christ. We have been immersed in Christ. And and by the way, this is true of every Christian. Sometimes you might hear, Pentecostal or charismatic Christians say something like, Yes, I, I understand that you believe in Jesus, but have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? And have you done this? And have you done that? And and what they mean is, have you received the second blessing? I rejoice, and it's great that you have Jesus. But have you gotten the second blessing of the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? And yet, Scripture is very simple. It's very clear. There are no haves and have-nots among Christians. Every true believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:13 is crystal clear. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So if you know Christ, then you are in union with him And you have been immersed in the fullness of his redemptive work, and you have the indwelling spirit within you, and you have all of the Holy Spirit. The question is does the Holy Spirit have all of you? That's the issue. It's not that we need more of the Holy Spirit. And we beg and plead with God to give us more of the Holy Spirit. The issue is, are we willing to submit to the word of God such that the Holy Spirit may have more of us? More control. More leadership in our lives. If you know Jesus, then you have been immersed in him. And you're now a part of the body of Christ. Number three, you were also made alive, regenerated in your spirit. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, why did we need to be made alive? Well, because the scripture says that that we are, we're dead. We are born spiritually dead. You were dead, he says, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead in the old man. Before Christ, you were spiritually dead. And, you, and, and in our, our, that's true of all of us. Our spiritual heart was crusted over with deadness it was not alive but in christ paul says god has made us alive god made alive together with him Now here Paul is referring to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit which Jesus teaches us about in the third chapter of the Gospel of John where it says, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the member of the Trinity who is responsible for the work that we refer to as regeneration, which is the breathing in of new life. So before we were saved, we were spiritual corpses But just like Ezekiel preached the word of God to a field filled with dead bones and God brought them to life, so through the gospel, through the hearing of the gospel, through the word of God, God, the Holy Spirit, brings us to new life in Christ, unites us to Christ. And that should result in a lot of changes in our lives. Look at Ephesians chapter two, just back um, one book in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the way Paul says it here. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were, past tense. He's writing to believers. You were dead before you knew Christ. You were dead in your sins, the sins that you walked in. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was just the natural thing for you to do because you you had a dead heart. You had a heart that was not alive to God. This was the natural thing for you to do. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... When we look out at creation, we see the power of God, the brilliance of God as the master designer, the the one who breathed everything into life. We see his majesty, we see his power. We do not see his grace, we do not see his kindness. That is the revelation we receive in Christ. In Christ we see the grace of God, the kindness of God, and and Paul is blown away in his mind about these things, so much so that he refers to these things as being immeasurable. You cannot measure the value of these gifts of grace and kindness. And it's by grace that we've been saved, verse 8, through faith. Faith is the agency by which we receive the grace of Of God. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created, or I like to say, recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. We were regenerated by the Holy Spirit for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The moment we were saved, we became a new person. The Spirit of God breathed life into our dead corpse. Our dead heart was made alive by God in Christ. And that new heart, because the heart is the control center of man... That new heart now becomes the new control center of the Spirit of God. And as we learn to follow Him and walk in His ways, we see this process that we refer to as sanctification, which is we're putting off the old man, putting off the sins of our old man, the flesh, and we're putting on the new man, those things that are in Righteousness. That's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4 very clearly. Put off your old self, put on the new self. We now can do that only in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this in experience that you can try as hard as you want in your flesh to change who you are. But until you learn to submit to God and rest in the Spirit of God and trust that God's Word is true and you will follow it, you won't experience the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit in order to change from the inside out. So, at salvation, the whole point that Paul's making here in in Colossians 2 and verse 14, or 13, I think is where we are, is that God, at the moment of salvation, gives us a new heart. And this new heart has an entirely new disposition toward God. And his word. I started reading this week a new daily devotional, a collection of writings from the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, who lived in the late 1500s and early 1600s. And, And I was gripped by these words Where God intends to do any good, he first works in the heart a gracious disposition after which he looks upon his own work as upon a lovely object, and so does give them other blessings. Now, in a tender heart, these three properties concur. It is sensible. It is pliable. It is yielding. A tender heart is always a sensible heart. A tender heart is pliable and yielding. A tender heart, so soon as the word is spoken, yields to it. It quakes at warnings, obeys precepts, melts at promises, and the promises sweeten the heart. But hardness of heart is quite the opposite it will not yield to the touch. Such a heart may be broken in pieces, but it will not receive any impression. A hard heart is like a stone to God or goodness. It is not yielding, but resists and repels all that is good. You may break it in pieces, but it is unframable for any true service. On the contrary, a melting and tender heart is sensible, yielding, and fit for any service both to God and man. Oh, that we would pray that God would give us a melting heart before his word, a tender heart before his word. Paul is saying in Christ we are made alive and we are given a new heart that is submissive to the indwelling spirit of God. This is a redemptive work that is true for you, believer. Bank on it. There's a fourth work of Christ that we see here in this passage, and that as you were forgiven. Your sin debt was fully paid by the sacrifice of Christ. Having forgiven, verse 13, us all our trespasses, how did he do this? How did, he, how did God forgive these violations of the law? Well, first of all, we need to understand that forgive comes from the same word family that the word grace comes from. So forgiveness is a grace gift from God. And we have all broken God's law more times than we know or we could even count All of these trespasses, God has forgiven us in Christ. Why? Because Jesus took on himself the penalty for our disobedience. He assumed the curse of the law in our place. And so we who deserved to be cursed are set free by the one who was cursed in our place. We saw this earlier in chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, look back at verse 14 because here Paul describes this forgiveness in three ways. First, he says that that Jesus erased our sin debt By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, Jesus paid the bill. Jesus paid the bill that we could never afford to pay. As an old hymn says, I had a debt I could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Praise God. Forgiveness means that He erased our sin debt. Secondly, it means that He removed the bill against us that formed a barrier. Uh, Look what he says in verse 14. This record of debt stood against us with its legal demands. Speaking of the law, the law of God, the law of God is like a hounding bill collector demanding payment. I mean, what an awful job to have to have to be a bill collector. That's what the law is like. Constantly reminding us, you owe more than you can pay. You'll never be able to get out of debt against uh, the debt you have with God. And yet, what does scripture say? That Jesus fulfilled the law and he silenced the collection agency. How did he do this? He did it by perfectly fulfilling every part of God's good law and then taking his perfect life to the cross as an offering in our place. That's how he did it. He erased our sin debt. He removed the bill that formed a barrier. And thirdly, he nailed the bill to the cross. He took the judgment of the law against us and nailed it to the cross with himself. And so the law and its power over us died with Christ. Why then, Colossians, do you want to go back into a legalistic system of righteousness? Why would you do that? Paul is saying When it's Jesus has nailed it to the cross, and you are free in him. That's forgiveness. And then there's a fifth work that we share in. And that is that you entered the victory of Christ and will share in his ultimate triumph. He disarmed, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God disarmed the rulers. How? In Christ, through Christ. And most likely, these rulers and authorities are angelic beings because of some of the doctrinal errors that Paul is correcting here in the book that false teachers were exalting angels in both creation and redemption and so paul again is making it clear that christ is preeminent over all he is all in all and there's two common interpretations of verse 15 that that the rulers and authorities are satan and his demons or fallen angels Or they are the angels who were part of God's delivery system of the law. And I think Paul could certainly have both in mind. But I I lean toward that second interpretation. Because he's already dealt with the evil angels in chapter 1. When he talks about the domain of darkness. And the context here with verse 14 is the law. And so... Jesus is being exalted above the angels, which is what the author of Hebrews does. Where he says in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The ultimate revelation of God comes through Jesus. And then four verses later he says, having become as much superior to the angels. So what's the point of verse 15 following verse 14? Well, it's this, that by virtue of our union with Christ, we share in the ultimate victory and triumph that belongs to Christ. We will share one day in that ultimate victory and triumph that belongs to Christ. Paul uses this truth to encourage the Corinthians who were uh, some Christians in the church in Corinth were taking each other to court. And they were saying, and Paul was saying, don't you understand that within the local church you have what you need to sort out your differences? And he reminds them, he says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? I don't pretend to know what all that means, the ramifications of that. But because we are united with Christ, we share in his ultimate victory. Paul then says, how much more then should you not be the judge about matters pertaining to this life? You have what you need in Christ. You have the word of God. You can figure it out in the life of the local church. So in Christ, we share victory. Truths like this are surely what led the apostle to say in 2 Corinthians, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal profession, procession in Christ. The triumph already belongs to us in him. So the whole point of this passage and where we are here in the book is that we are complete in Christ. This is our new identity. And knowing this and acting on these truths enables us to live out in real time who we are as new creatures in Christ. Because understanding who you are in him affects every single area of your life. So Paul here is drawing these believers back from their infatuation with legalistic systems of righteousness and worldly philosophies. How is he doing it? By exalting Christ and our sufficiency in him. In light of this, Richard Chin asks, some penetrating questions for us this morning. He asks, why would anyone turn to the elements of the world? For how can we surpass being in Christ? How can the world offer anything that exceeds dying with Christ and being raised with Christ? We cannot experience Christ more fully and we cannot outstrip being in Christ because all of God's fullness dwells in him and we have been filled in Christ why one final question why would you embrace any world view that leaves this Jesus out of the picture We have been united through faith to the glorious Savior. And in him, we are complete. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us how rich we are in Christ. Thank you for turning our eyes away from the dull philosophies of this world that have an appeal to the flesh. Thank you for showing us that the body of flesh has been cut away and we are now new people in Christ and we have been immersed in your body. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God to walk in newness of life. And we have been forgiven, oh, so fully forgiven, Lord. We give you glory, Lord, and we look forward to the day in which we shall we shall see our Savior face to face and we shall share in his ultimate triumph. In the meantime, Lord, help us to believe that these truths are really true for us now, so that we will walk in that freedom. And walk in that victory and follow Christ with all of our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen.